Greg Rubel of Living Streams Community Church in McCordsville, Indiana. We want to thank you for your interest in God's Word and this message. We pray that God puts it into your heart. Well, good morning, everyone. Everyone here and uh, everyone joining us. Uh, online. As you grab your Bibles and turn uh, to the passage this morning of uh, 1 John chapter 1, I'd like for us to read a couple passages or a couple verses from the screen this morning. Before we get there, if you're missing Pastor Greg, I know we all are. Uh, he's out uh, for this month. I'm sure we're all aware at this point. Out, out this month on a well-deserved sabbatical. So, uh, hang in there. All will return to normal soon enough. Um, I'm sure we're looking forward to that. Let's read these verses from the screen together. Um, both of them from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 15:16. Your words were found, and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. And Jeremiah 23:29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord? And like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Love those passages. Those will frame our, uh, an appropriate reverence for his word um, in any setting. But certainly we want that here this morning. <clears throat> you know, one of the most quotable movie scenes of all time, and there are many. But we find a humorous take on the importance of personal and professional qualifications. It's difficult to start out with such an irreverent, something so irreverent. You guys can throw me out of here in no time at all. But the, the Monty Python troupe uh, put out a movie decades ago called The Holy Grail. And I warn you, like most of their work, it is, um, in fact, irreverent, an irreverent take on something. And this particular movie is an irreverent take on the myth, history, and folklore of King Arthur. Let's take a look. Well, at every turn, every step, Arthur's royal qualifications were challenged by uh, uh, unusually politically adept peasants, which, of course, is what makes it so pathetically funny. I can't believe you people actually laughed at that. (laughs) No matter how hard he tried to establish his qualifications as king, to authenticate himself to them for who he really was, they just wouldn't have it. Well, when I went to India last year and preached on this passage of Scripture, I had to explain to them that I was from a city named Indianapolis, or the city of Indians, that was the capital of the state called Indiana, or the land of Indians, but that we clearly got the whole India and Indian thing wrong all the way back in Christopher Columbus's time, because this ain't India. 
And somehow this error has lasted for well over 500 years, a mistake he thought he had discovered the West or, or you know, India, but wasn't it at all. So in terms of qualifications, for that reason alone, among many others, I might be less than qualified uh, to come and speak to them. But I thank God that uh, his own word is qualification and authority enough for itself. And it's uh, that that we're going to dig into today in his word. So let's read uh, the first part of the passage from First uh, John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. So this is an authentication for a proclamation that he's about to make. In the opening letter, or of the letter, John establishes qualifications for writing this letter to the recipients. So first he authenticates himself, and then he authenticates his message that he proclaims to the recipients. So in the past, when we would send secure letters, um, we used wax to seal them. Letter was closed, wax was applied, and then um, like a signet ring would be pressed into it to mark it, mark it as unique. So when the recipient would know for sure who sent it by the seal, um, the, the sign that was in the wax, but he also would know that um, no one had opened and tampered with the letter along the way because the seal was still intact. And pretty much all of us, most maybe... Um, of us would use the internet, but certainly most, if not all of us, would use an ATM at the bank. When you go to the ATM, you put your card in, you have to use a PIN or a personal identifying number um, to uniquely identify you yourself for who you are to gain access to your bank account. When we use the internet, you need um, a username or your email and a password. And if you're smart, you'll create a really good and unique password that only you would know. And therefore, when you get access to the bank account, you can be, you can be sure that you've authenticated yourself, which is what got you there. So similarly here, John is establishing his authentic identity as the author of the letter, as well as the authenticity of his message. So in terms of his identity, he's making it clear. He's saying, I'm the John that was with Jesus from the beginning of his public ministry. He's saying, I'm the John that was with Jesus who was God. The word that was before all things manifested as a man. In fact, manifested as the Son of God and the Son of Man. He's saying, I'm the John that witnessed all those miraculous deeds that you've heard about and probably some that you haven't. He's saying, I'm the John that intimately knew Jesus as a man through the long day-to-day life together that we spent for what ended up being three all too short years. Now, if we read through the rest of the entire letter of 1 John, it's clear that he's writing people that already know him. He refers not just a few verses later, he refers to him as my little children and beloved, for instance. Otherwise, I think if he's writing total strangers, we would expect that his qualifying, uh, the qualifying portion of his letter here would, would be even more um, substantial to prove who he was. So he's writing people that do know him at least a little, and I believe they would know him also by his writing style. Because even we, who never met John personally, we can 
recognize John's writing ourselves. I mean, if you read the Gospel of John, if you read the three letters that he wrote, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, if you read Revelation, he writes in a unique style. Um, So if we would know that this letter would come from him, surely they would know that as well. So he authenticates himself here in the first part in the opening of the letter, but he also authenticates his message. And what is the message? Well, plainly or simply, it's the good news. It's the gospel. It's the original logos or word before creation and the logos or word of creation and that it was Jesus himself and that Jesus was truly God become flesh and that he died and rose again, giving eternal life to those who would believe in him and trust him for salvation and redemption from their sins. That's the message, for there is no other Savior. So John was an eyewitness to this very message of truth, and this is his message and testimony. Before we get too far, though, there's something we need to be sure not to miss. There's something of great importance here in just this opening, that John had crossed over into a boundary. See, he had lived through the time when he used to be able to say to other eyewitnesses face-to-face when he would meet with them, you saw Jesus, you heard what he said, you saw what he did. Wasn't that all amazing? The person that he would be talking to had also witnessed or heard um, Jesus. But by the time that he's writing this letter, he had crossed over into a world that we all now live in, a world where we cannot point to a healthy, in-the-flesh Jesus We can't point to him preaching history's greatest sermons. We can't point to a Jesus healing others, hopelessly um, afflicted and oppressed by their physical, emotional, and spiritual circumstance. We cannot point to a Jesus um, who is physically there. We can't point to one uh, to the wounds in his hands, his feet, and his side as uh, evidence of his own resurrection, his bodily resurrection. John had crossed over a boundary in time and a new reality in the world that's almost like a new country. And this is the reality or country that we find ourselves in. And this reality or the country that we live in relies upon faith more than sight. So listen to this exchange from one of my favorite book series. I'm reading it for the third time in three years. That's how bad I am about uh, stuff that I find that I like reading. And it just so happens, this is an irony of ironies, it also just so happens to be also about King Arthur. But it's from, uh, it's, uh, from the time period around three to 400 A.D. in Britain. And uh, these folks are talking about Jesus with one another. Once he walked in the world as a man, and though many believed, many others did not. Belief is not always born of sight. Therefore, it is the Savior striving to bring faith into the world. We believe by faith, and by faith we are saved from sin and death. What kind of faith is it that believes only what can be seen with the eyes or touched with the hands? So there is testimony from those that did see and touch, But for most, we express faith given to us in him we do not see. There is no other way to come to the true God but through faith. (coughs) The writer of Hebrews puts it even more plain. In Hebrews 11, 6, he says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. 
For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So let's recognize that part of John's motive for authenticating himself and establishing his qualifications while building his testimony is because he was appealing not just to the mind, not just to the heart, not just to reason and emotion, but also the human capacity for faith. Our challenge and our experience in this world will be no different. When Jesus' followers reach out into the world and speak or serve in the name of Christ, it is powerful to use our own testimony as evidence of what Christ has done in our life, not just what has happened to us, but from whom the testimony comes, the author and the perfecter or completer or finisher of our faith. But we also must remember that we are very often appealing to the faith center of other people, not just their capacity to reason and understand with their minds or even their ability to empathize in their hearts. And that faith capacity requires more than mere persuasive skills than any of us have in this room. It requires the Holy Spirit. And so before, during, and after our testimony, when we're sharing with friends, relatives, or strangers, it's important for us to pray for the Spirit to do the work that only the Spirit can do. Before we move on, there's something else that's interesting here. Implicit in all of this is that we Jesus followers will, in fact, will, in fact, share our testimony in faith with others. And that's what John is getting to next when he gets into the fullness of fellowship. So having established and authenticated himself, he's now revealing two of his purposes for writing the letter. The first is given in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard... We proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He says, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So as someone who's more of an introvert than an extrovert, I'm not an authority on fellowship or even hospitality. I love hosting folks, so I don't do a very good job. And so I say that really with great shame. I'm not proud of that at all. I'm just being honest with you. But I witnessed and experienced firsthand the very best hospitality of my entire life last year when we went to India. If anyone is going to suppose to teach anyone else in the world about fellowship and hospitality, I'm convinced that it's them that need to be the instructors. I was humbled, and I mean humbled. Humiliated is probably the better word, but I might, might be overused. But humbled by the consistent, generous and kind and compassionate and joyful hospitality that we received by every single person in every home we visited. And it was many. I can't remember. I think we covered 15 or 1,700 miles while we were over there in 17 days. We visited a lot of people and a lot of houses. And so while I'm not authority on fellowship, let me try to be faithful to this word on fellowship anyway, okay? So I'm sure that we all have non-Christian friends. These are true, genuine friendships that we have with others, regardless of their belief, or really, probably in most cases today, lack of belief. God has put a genuine love in our hearts for others, whether they have faith or not, and that is wonderful. But the fellowship that John is talking about here goes beyond that human horizontal. It involves the spiritual and the vertical. 
By fellowship, he certainly doesn't mean just an, a, an association or just an acquaintance. It isn't osmosis. It's not enough to be associated with John while John only is in fellowship with the Father and Son. No, he means that he is writing so that his readers and listeners will have fellowship with John and that they will have fellowship with the Father and with Jesus. That's his intent. That's what he's saying. I'm writing so that. That's his purpose. So that you may have fellowship with us. Our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. There's a spiritual triangle of fellowship here. And that is John's goal. That's why he said so that in this opening part. And really, that's our hope too, isn't it? As believers, as followers of Christ, is it not our greatest desire that all of our friends and family would know the love of the Father and the Son? And to believe in the Son whom the Father sent? And to trust in Jesus, not only to be saved from hell, not just the fire insurance policy, but also to trust in Him daily for lordship and strength and fellowship and joy as we go through this very life in the here and now. And I've heard it said, and it's an eye-opener, the gift of the gospel is Jesus. The gift of the gospel is Jesus. When you trust Jesus, you don't just lose hell, you gain Jesus in the here and now, daily, constant. This is the great treasure of the Christian life. This is... It's this very treasure that we wish our friends and family in the whole world to discover for themselves, that they would know, love, and have fellowship with Jesus. After I got back from India last year, I was having um, lunch with some of my co-workers at an Indian restaurant, and, and uh, the lady sitting across from me was one of my friends from work. She's from India. And uh, I was sharing some of our trip. I'm telling her about Pastor Mekwan. I said, you know, he's so effortlessly... We'll talk to anyone about Jesus. So the waiter will come up to the table and he'll say, do you know Jesus? And uh, so we have a really great relationship. Uh, we do. And she said, why are Christians always um, telling people about their faith or trying to convert people? And everyone else at the, the table, there were about eight of us. Everyone else at the table was like, oh, you know. And a couple of the guys who love discourse and debate wanted no part of this discussion in that setting. But, and so I chided them for it. I'm like, what? You guys are bailing out <laughs> on a real conversation. And uh, so we had a little bantering back and forth. But um, afterward, I got to talk with her at work. I said, listen, it's for joy that we can't help ourselves. It's for joy. And I told her some other things, but we'll get to those in a moment. And when we find an excellent restaurant or when we uh, find a great new series on Netflix or when we find the very best vacation spot, we can't help ourselves. We can't help ourselves. We reach out to our friends and our family and, and say what? You have got to go here. You have got to go there and order the whatever. You have got to go and see this. You won't believe what I saw while I was out in the woods, in the mountains, in the lake, wherever, the beach. You have got to go see this. But we have found the creator of the universe. We have found the savior 
of the world. We have found the lover of our souls. We have found our stronghold in the day of trouble. We have found a faithful one, the constant one, who will never leave us or forsake us. We have found the wiper-outer of all our wrongs. We have found the word of life. We have found the Alpha and the Omega. We have found the King of Kings. And we found the Lord of Lords. Not to guilt this into us, uh, guilt us into this at all, and ideally this happens naturally at all times, but at least on our best days, at least on our best days as believers, followers of Christ, renew, regenerated people, we know we can't help ourselves but to tell our friends and even strangers, you know, you've got to know Jesus. You've got to trust in Him. You've got to lean in on Him. Trust Him with this circumstance, but also trust Him with your life. He has changed my life. This is my story. This is my testimony. I have fellowship with him. I want you to have fellowship with him too. It's real. But this is a mysterious work of a sovereign God. We're not going to win anyone over by ourselves. It's a mysterious work of a sovereign God and a powerful spirit. For some reason, God has chosen to make us co-laborers in this miraculous work. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollo watered, but God gave growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field and God's building. So we're co-laborers. We work with God all the while, longing for the horizontal and personal fellowship with our friends and family to become even more, to become a vertical and spiritual and an eternal fellowship with our good Father and Jesus Christ, His Son. So in thinking about what would be a good illustration of this whole, look, come and have fellowship with me so that you will have fellowship with the Father, what would illustrate that? And and here recently it, it was... It was a no-brainer. Suzanne, uh, Josiah, Eli, and I just a couple weeks ago went to a camp up at Fort Wilderness in the northern woods of Wisconsin. And there I met Ron and Tom Robertson. So they're, um, they're well-aged by this time. Uh, in fact, Ron had just announced that he's uh, finally retiring from his staff position there. But certainly um, late 60s, uh, maybe even early 70s for these two brothers. But they'd been there since they were young boys. And the camp was started in the 50s by their their mom and dad. And ever since about 1956 when this camp was established, so 62 years, they have been welcoming people to this property into their lives with the full intent purpose of getting people in a position where they can be closer to Christ. Their whole life is this testimony, drawing people in, giving them a place to retreat, an experience, fellowship with them, fellowship with one another, and fellowship with Christ. And while we were there, you know, it's a, it's a, it was a Christian family camp, so it, it was you know, a good place. What they call um, a stronghold for Christian adventure, that's what they call it. But five people were baptized while we were there. So what a great illustration of this passage of what John is is saying. These guys are also living it out. So if fullness and fellowship is the first of a couple reasons that John is writing about in this letter, 
we need to go ahead and look at the second one. And it comes with a great surprise. Verse 4 says, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, before we just rumble right past this short verse, let's not pass over the word joy. In our age of endless cynicism and division across all cultural spheres in this country alone, it's far too easy to skim over joy. It seems we hardly know what joy is anymore. The joy is not some fleeting delight. It's not the afterglow um, uh, after ice cream. <laughs> it's not our favorite team winning the championship. It's not our most hated team losing the championship either, even though sometimes. <laughs> and it's not basically just contentment e- either, or even what we would call mere happiness. It's joy. But what does pure joy look like? Think about this for a moment. Maybe it's childlike. What does uninhibited, innocent joy look like? Sometimes it's accompanied by tears. We've heard the phrase tears of joy. What comes to mind for you when you think pure joy? Well, some of you know James Corden. He's a late-night talk show host kind of guy. Every once in a while, he has a car karaoke segment of his show where a celebrity will join him and ride around in the car, and they'll, oh, they'll sing songs that they're playing together. And very often, the celebrity that's riding around with James in his car is the artist that performed the song or the songs. Recently, he did a segment with Paul McCartney. And if you haven't seen this already, I beg you to go watch it. Go find it. James Corden, Paul McCartney on YouTube. You'll find it. It'll be a no-brainer. But near the end, hate to spoil this for you people that haven't seen it yet, but this is great sermon illustration material. I'm moving ahead. <laughs> near the end, McCartney and his band are putting on a surprise concert for the people in a small pub in Liverpool. They have no idea. In fact, it starts out like James Corden puts a quarter in a jukebox and, and lets somebody pick you know whatever they want, and it's a Beatles song, and the next thing you know, the curtains open up, and there's McCartney and his band, and they're playing, and people are just shocked, totally surprised. In no way that could they have ever expected to experience anything like this in their lives. There is joy and surprise, but joy on the faces of everyone in that pub. Now get this, there are actually people, after a while, outside the pub. Apparently they can't get in. I don't know what the deal is with this. They're pressing their faces up against the glass, like stained glass, like it's a church. They're pressing their faces up. You can see their eyes and their noses. And then some of them, they're pressing their ear up against the wall so they can hear better. Paul McCartney doing Paul McCartney songs and Beatles songs. Well, people on the inside are literally in tears of joy hearing these old throwback songs that they grew up with. Maybe actually some of them are like, they were born well after all these songs have been off the radio and whatnot. But there is this joy. And I've wondered if those people on the inside loved it so much, why didn't they go out and just have the other people come in? And there's an illustration there too, I'm sure. But but go watch this and you'll see a glimpse of what human joy is like with something as simple as an artist like that. And in Psalm 16, it says, In your presence is fullness of joy. 
So we have to stop on that too and picture that. Those are wonderfully poetic words in a psalm, but have you ever experienced fullness of joy in the presence of the Lord yourself? So even if not that, think about the last time you experienced any joy at all. I was thinking the birth of a grandson, maybe, or a granddaughter. Um, A miraculous healing, or even an ordinary healing, really, can bring joy. Um, About a child, son, or a daughter who's wayward, who's come back home. About landing a job that there's no question whatsoever that this has come through the faithful and prayerful petition of saints. What is it for you? What, what are you picturing? Now, even in that picture, has your joy ever been what you would call complete or perfect? It's, it's perfect. It's perfected. perfected. It's complete. John is saying here that his joy has not been complete yet, but that by writing, he's praying that it would become so. Now, listen, that should shock us to our core because of who John is. Maybe you've overlooked this before, as I did until a couple of years ago while reading this letter in personal time again. But we need to stop and consider who John was and what he had seen and experienced. And how is it that his joy could not have been complete well before writing this letter? Well, we know that John was one of the first, was first a disciple of John the baptizer. We also know that he was one of the first disciples of Jesus. So he was there at the very beginning of Christ's ministry, and indeed he was one of the three closest disciples to Jesus, which means he had a chance to see it all. See it all. So what are some of the things that he had witnessed or experienced? Well, he know that, we know that he witnessed miracles. He walked and lived with Jesus over the entire three years of Jesus' public ministry. He heard Jesus' voice. Pretty joyful thing, I would imagine. Surely he'd even touched Jesus. Touched Jesus. Pretty joyful thing. He he saw Jesus' intimate care for people. He saw Jesus' unwavering courage and boldness in the face of those who wanted to kill him and eventually did. Let's just name a few things. A few, a few, just rattle off a few things that, that John had experienced that might have given him a good dose of joy. John saw Jesus change water into wine. Didn't complete his joy, though. John saw Jesus heal the blind, deaf, and mute, and the woman with the issue of blood. But it didn't complete his joy. John saw Jesus multiply fish and bread at least twice. But it didn't complete John's joy. John saw Jesus walk on water and calm the stormy sea and cast out demons in dramatic episodes. But none of those things completed John's joy. John saw Jesus raise the dead. Again, we need to stop and think about the words that we read in the scriptures and what I just said. He raised the dead. Someone was dead. Can you put yourself there? In the tomb for four days, Jesus called him out, and and Lazarus walked out fully alive. 
These people had lost a dear brother and friend. There were tears and loss and the grief that we experience when we lose someone. And here he come walking out of the grave. That would be pretty joyful. I'm pretty sure there would be tears of joy in that situation. But it didn't complete John's joy. John saw soldiers fall to the ground when Jesus spoke the words, I am he. John saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove and coming to re- come to rest on Jesus during his baptism. None of these things completed John's joy. John heard the audible voice of God the Father over Jesus twice at his baptism and at the transfiguration, but that didn't complete John's joy. He heard Jesus' great and wonderful teaching, truly great sermons, powerfully and perfectly delivered to people right when they needed them, but it didn't complete John's joy. He heard Jesus debate law, politics, customs, and scripture with rulers, elders, and scribes. We think we're our armchair debaters on social media. Jesus knew what he was talking about and had authority. But this, even this did not complete John's joy. He also witnessed Jesus' compassion and healing. He witnessed a triumphal entry in Jerusalem. Again, let's pause and think about what that looks like. As Christians, as followers of Christ, seeing Jesus get his due honor and respect, picturing him coming in, with the crowds rightfully lauding him, Hosanna in the highest, palm branches on the ground, bringing him into the city just the way he deserved to be brought in. I know that there must have been joy in that moment, but it didn't complete his joy. John saw the transfiguration. Again, pause. This is an out-of-this-world experience. He's on a mountain with Jesus who is transfigured, in, in, in some way, and there's Elijah and Moses next to him. Powerful experience and testimony that John is one of the very few who could say he was there. But that didn't complete his joy. He saw Jesus' death. He saw Jesus on the cross, the Lamb of God, take away his sins and all of ours. It didn't complete his joy. He saw the empty tomb where Jesus had been buried, and he saw the linens laying aside that used to be wrapped around Jesus' body. And he, the moment had to have come. Joy. But it didn't complete his joy. It wasn't full. It wasn't perfect yet. He saw Jesus' re- resurrection. He saw that Jesus had come back to life bodily. He saw the wounds in his hands, his side, and his feet. Not just for a moment, not just for a few extra words, but for many days, appearing to hundreds of people. That must have been a joyful thing for John to have experienced, but it wasn't enough to complete his joy. He saw Jesus' ascension, again, another out-of-this-world experience, watching Jesus rise up through the clouds. Amazing thing, if you would imagine yourself being there. Out-of-this-world, supernatural, can't explain it, but it didn't complete John's joy. And you know, John was known as the beloved. You know, David was a man after God's own heart, but John was the beloved, meaning the one that Jesus loved. Even that didn't complete his joy. And so many of John's experiences show the divinity of Jesus and that he was, in fact, God in the flesh. This is the message of good news that John is writing to them and to us about. It's these experiences that produced amazing joy, but apparently they weren't enough to complete 
John's joy. Somehow, and this is hard to say, somehow John's joy was lacking something. Right here, John reveals to us that his completed joy comes from sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel so that those who hear it will have fellowship with him, John, and with the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. That's going to complete John's joy. And we look back and we remember what Matthew said, or wrote, that Jesus said in chapter 5, You are the light of the world. Jesus says, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And the final words in Matthew's gospel are instructions from Jesus after his resurrection to go and make disciples of all nations. So it really follows, and it's really understandable, that John's joy won't be complete until he fulfills this commission of his master, his treasure. And so he writes, John writes, and he speaks, and he does whatever it takes to reach the nations and disciple him. And it's this that brings him joy and completes his joy. Many of you will know a song that's probably almost 15, 20 years old. Knowing you. Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. I love that song. This might be a bit controversial, but maybe there is a greater thing. Knowing Jesus and knowing that your friends and loved ones know and love Jesus. Maybe that's the greatest thing. John even says in another letter, in Third John, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. Christ-following parents, is your joy complete without having your children know Jesus? Of course it isn't. And Paul says something similar to the members of the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And Paul also expresses that his own joy can be complete if the believers would strive for good fellowship in the name of Christ in Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So this is really John's dilemma in the dilemma of all Christians, the gospel of Jesus, Jesus himself, is so good and so true and so valuable that the only way to complete our already immense joy, it is immense, is in the sharing of it, the sharing of this good and true treasure with others so that they may also know Jesus as their Lord, King, Savior, and treasure. And what a treasure Jesus is. What a great treasure it is to know him and to know that he knows us and loves us. This is a treasure beyond worth and price, and we would never trade that for anything. There is nothing that we would exchange our salvation for. But here's the thing. The treasure of our salvation, a treasure of our knowing Jesus, is the only treasure that increases, and we give it away. Propelled by love, compelled by love. As Christians, our joy will be complete as we see others start and progress along their faith journey with Christ. It is the fruit 
of the fulfillment of that great commission that Jesus himself gave us. And of course, we're, we're going to have trouble. You know, John wrote in his gospel what Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's not going to be easy. And it is particularly difficult for us to share our faith here in America today. But part of the trouble, church, listen up, part of the trouble is within our own control. D.A. Carson is a well-respected pastor, theologian, and author. He's not some liberal literary critic of the Bible, okay? Listen to what he said back in 2005. Listen up. When you're busy hating everybody and denouncing everybody and seeking political solutions to everything, it's difficult to evangelize, isn't it? It's very hard to be compassionate and to look on the crowds as though they're sheep without a shepherd. Very hard to look on them like that when they're taking away my heritage. Yet at the same time, because it is a democracy here, there are things we ought to be doing to draw the line here and there. Even if you understand that laws don't finally engender justice, they might preserve it for a while, but finally they're all broken and you have to change the laws. There are a few things we ought to be doing. There are faithful things we ought to be doing, but at the end of the day, if you can't do it with compassion and gently and leave the doors open for evangelism, boy, you destroy everything. He says, I think one of the devil's tactics with respect to the church on the right today is to make them so hate everybody else that at the end of the day, they can't be believed anywhere, not even in the proclamation of the gospel. Ouch. Makes me want to be quiet on Facebook and Twitter for a while. Ouch. That's difficult to read. And it's difficult to read because it's true. And again, that was from 13 years ago. If anything, those words are even truer today. So Jesus also told us that there will be soil where we sow the seed of the word, but the word will be taken away or will shrivel and die. So there's going to be challenges. Even our own children may fall away from faith. It will be difficult and we'll meet resistance. We may even have some relationships fall away because of our faith. But still we press on, not in our own strength, not in the hope that we have in ourselves, but in the strength and the hope of the one who lives in us. I was listening to a song this morning, unexpectedly in the middle of the song. Christ in us, the hope of all the world. I'm like, man, I should have made the sermon this week. Christ in us, the hope of all the world. You know, here at Living Streams, we're very intentional about them preaching through the Bible in an expository way. We're very intentional about trying to set a table here. Pastor Greg, this is like one of, if not the top priority of his role here as lead pastor is to set the table every week with the word of God. And the intent there is that we would all become equipped and that we would we would become solid, faithful, Christ-following Christians that can take this message out into the world. So there's this go and show or go and tell sort of mentality about um, how we want to approach Ministry, You know, Greg says, you leave here and you, you go out into the world, take this with you. He says that often. There, and so we, we do recognize that it's difficult. There are other, um, other places we can go and it's really more of a come and see kind of a thing. And just embracing the fact that most Christians have a hard time 
um, expressing uh, their testimony and talking about Jesus with friends, family, and strangers. And so there's sort of a come and see mentality where there might be a little more of a show put on for, to make it a little easier for folks that aren't church to come into a, a church building and, and begin to experience um, fellowship in Christ, what that looks like, um, but also Christ himself. And so this morning I just want to recognize how difficult it is for us to do that. We want to continue to be a go-and-show kind of church. But listen, if you're having a hard time talking to your friends, family, strangers about Christ, well, tell them to come and see anyway. Tell them to come and see. And we'll do whatever we can to be faithful with the Word um, week to week and with the relationship that you're entrusting with everyone else here as you bring folks in. It needs to be a safe place. Would the worship team come on back up? It's a challenge we all face. The good news is that we can do this. We can do what he calls and, and challenges us to do. And we can do it with joy because it's the power of the Spirit that works in and through us that completes our, the joy of our own salvation uh, shared with others. It is the power of the Spirit that expresses um, the gospel to our family and friends in the world that we may have true fellowship with them and every person and that their fellowship would be with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's by this... The fulfillment of the Great Commission that completes our joy, that Jesus is building his church. He's forming his bride. Moment by moment, Jesus is building his church and forming his bride, and he is growing his kingdom here on earth. And we are his joyful co-laborers in building a kingdom alongside him if we're faithful. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the encouragement and exhortation. Thank you for your faithfulness and your constancy to us. We ask, Lord, for your help and your power to go and do what you call us to do. Lord, stir up in us images of joy that you've brought into our life in the past and and maybe even now. Let us treasure and cherish those times. Lord, maybe be stirred, too, by your spirit to go and reach those that that are dying and lost without you, even in this neighborhood right around this building. And we thank you for all of that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.